You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, the benefits. The question 36 is this. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? So these are the benefits that we've looked at, the objective benefits in salvation. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Five wonderful benefits that the Christian enjoys because he's justified, adopted, and sanctified. So all true Christians are united to Christ. That is perhaps the most important salvific doctrine that we can understand is union with Christ. Everything we enjoy flows out of our union with Christ. And because of that, we enjoy the first fruits of communion with him in glory. So there's union with Christ. We're joined to him. And then because of that union, there's communion with Christ. We share with him all the blessings and the benefits of redemption. And the things we're talking about today are samples or foretastes of the glory with Christ that we will enjoy fully in the life to come. So we're not there yet. Theologians often talk about already not yet. We already have some things, but not yet everything. And the things that we're talking about today are foretastes of what we're going to enjoy in the life to come. Because he's our covenant head, we're entitled to a share in the glory which he now enjoys in heaven. Not just possibility, not just of uncertain hope, we are entitled. Because Jesus earned it, and because we're united to him, we're entitled to these blessings. So we can go to God in prayer and say, I'm united to your son by faith in the Holy Spirit, and these blessings are mine because of Christ. And he loves to hear that said. These are like a down payment of the full balance to be paid in due time, and we receive these certain covenant benefits. So these covenant benefits are the down payment. You're going to get it. You're going to get the whole inheritance. It belongs to you. Here's the down payment as a guarantee. Three of the benefits, assurance, peace, and joy, flow from seeing and sensing our justification, adoption, and sanctification. So I realize by faith in God's promise, And the evidence that I see in my life, I'm justified, I'm adopted, and seeing that and sensing it, I have assurance, peace, and joy. It's a subjective thing. Two of the benefits, increase of grace and perseverance, flow from the state of being justified, adopted, and sanctified. Because you are in Christ, and because you have right standing with God, You will have increase of grace, and you will persevere to the end. He will never let you go. That's a promise, and God does not lie. These foretastes 
These five things that we're talking about are not equally enjoyed or enjoyed equally at all times. They may ebb and flow from time to time. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And that's due to internal doubts. Some of us entertain doubts from time to time. Weak and doubting Christians are in the church. They can ebb and flow because of external temptations. Satan is very good at what he does, sadly. Attacks by Satan and disappointments in the world, etc. So things can make these benefits ebb and flow. Yet, the Bible teaches that believers are never left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. You may be discouraged, you may have some depression, but God promises you will not despair like Judas or Nietzsche or the list goes on. So that's by way of introduction. Any questions at this point? We're all tracking? Okay. So we don't enjoy communion with Christ in this life to the highest degree. We do commune with him. And perhaps the supper is the most visible way we can see that. We commune with Christ. It's a very intimate thing. To worthily communicate at that table is one of the highest privileges that a human being can ever enjoy. To have intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the future, we're going to receive a crown of righteousness and we'll have fullness of joy. Whatever that fullness means. Uh, We only have a slight degree right now. What we have now pales in comparison to what we'll enjoy then. Um, But it's an amazing promise. Small degrees of glory God gives us now for our encouragement, and they fall far short of that glory that we'll enjoy in heaven. The five benefits are freely distributed by the Holy Spirit, who is absolutely sovereign. Paul says, um, oh, we'll read that in a minute. What that means is that all believers do not enjoy these blessings at all times in the same measure to the same degree. Assurance of God's love, for example. There may be times when you enjoy that more than other times. There may be instances in your life when the measure of your assurance of God's love is greater than at other times. The degree of that assurance may improve or increase. So the idea is that if, you, if it ebbs and flows, don't be discouraged. That's normal. To some, the Spirit may give more, and to others, he may give less, all for reasons known only to him. He has infinite wisdom. He knows what he's doing. He cares for his children perfectly. And if he gives you less at a certain time, it must be for your good. Because he withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. That's a promise from Psalm 84. If it's not given to you, it must not be good, at least at that time. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So Paul is talking there about the spiritual gifts. But this whole conversation can also relate to that. He gives these things for the common good according to his infinite wisdom. William Cowper, or Cooper, he wrote, um, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And, you know, in that that hymn where it talks about prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, 
Uh, Cooper struggled his entire adult life with severe depression. And why? He was a sincere believer. I'm convinced he, was a tr- he trusted in Christ, but the Spirit, for reasons known only to him, decided to give him less of the assurance of God's love. And part of that is to teach him to rely upon the promise and not upon how he feels. Right? It's the truth. that's. Just, we talked about this in Men's Fellowship. It's the truth that sustains us. It's not our experience. It's not our feeling. It's not our emotion. Those things are good. God created emotions. But it's the truth that sustains us. So God hid the gospel things from the wise and understanding. He revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I put that in simply to show that God is sovereign over all things, including Redemption and the benefits that we enjoy. So whatever he gives us is out of grace. We don't deserve any of it. If we have even a slight degree, it's a blessing, right? Who are we to complain? Who are we to argue? Believers may expect to participate in the glory of God and to rejoice now in the hope of it. That's a wonderful thing. The hope of everlasting glory. And that hope is not uncertain. It's absolute. It's based upon the promise of God. As surely as we enjoy these benefits and privileges now, we will enjoy the eternal salvation they represent us. As you take that bread and you munch it in your teeth, and as you take that cup and you drink that wine or that grape juice, uh, that is a guarantee that you will enjoy salvation. God instituted it. It's not just some convenient thing that man has come up with. The descriptions of heaven are great, but these benefits provide an experiential foretaste. It's sort of like trying to describe honey to somebody. Oh, honey is sweet, it's great, it tastes wonderful. Well, that's great, but I want to taste it. If you taste honey, you have an experiential taste of what it's like. God gives us not only the descriptions of heaven, but he gives us these four tastes. We have them in worship. We have them in the Christian life throughout the week. And these five benefits are like the four tastes that he's talking about. Any questions at this point? This is all probably fairly introductory, Rob. Yeah, no, that's a, very good, that's a very good passage. You're right. And I think what God is saying there is that there is this experiential aspect to our faith. It's rooted, on, rooted in and based upon truth. The Lord is good, we're told. But let's taste and see. Let's act, actively put that into practice in our lives. We come into worship prepared, engaged. We're attentive to the word. We diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. We heedfully discern the Lord's body. We affectionately meditate upon his sufferings and death. And then throughout the week, we're engaged in prayer, Christian fellowship, taste and see. Don't just sit back and observe. Get involved. Engage your faith. You know, step out. And he is good. The Christian can testify that the Lord is good even in the midst of suffering, and perhaps especially in the midst of suffering. 
Uh, I've heard testimonies of people who have gone through afflictions tell me that, you know, in the depth of my affliction, that's when I felt closest to the Lord. It's true. Okay? So let's talk about these five benefits. Assurance of God's love. In justification, we sense his love for us in being forgiven and accepted. Now, that's based upon truth. And as we put that into faith or put our faith into action, we sense that we are forgiven. We are accepted by the Father. In adoption, we realize his love in welcoming us into his family. Once you're welcomed into the family of God, you are never disowned. Doesn't matter what you do or don't do. Each one of us fails every single day. We have sins of omission and sins of commission. He'll never cast you out of his family. In sanctification, we see his love in the way that he lovingly disciplines us. Have you forgotten that this is how God treats his sons? He disciplines, right? So in these three benefits that we have in Christ, justification, adoption, sanctification, we see and realize his love for us, and we're assured of it. In the process, our sins are mortified and our graces are stirred up. And as we see that process going on in our lives, our assurance deepens. I never, never would have said that 10 years ago. I never, ever could have endured that 10 years ago. The Lord in his fatherly love has taken care of me and he's sanctifying me. We experience an assurance of God's love that bears a resemblance to the life of glory. That assurance that we have now, that's by faith, will be sight then. We'll see the face of Christ. And in Christ, we know we've seen the Father. Mark? Right. Well, you have told us before, and you were right. We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Exactly. It's the whole process. Yeah. There are two types of assurance in the book of Hebrews, anyway. One is more objective, and the other is more subjective. Hebrews 6.11 we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. There's one. Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. So the apostle here is using two different phrases distinguishing between the full assurance of hope and the full assurance of faith. Now, what's he talking about there? What's the distinction? I think that the theologians who identify assurance of faith are right when they say it's a strong confidence in the truth of Christ. When you have the full assurance of faith, you know that the gospel of Christ is true. The promise of God is a verity. It is true. The assurance of hope is a certain persuasion of my own salvation. 
So the first one is, I know the gospel of Christ is true. The second one is, I know that I am a true believer. They're different. One is more objective. Here's the gospel of Christ. God cannot lie. It's true. One is more subjective. I know that I know the Lord Jesus. The full assurance of hope. And the assurance of God's love here is akin to the assurance of hope. I know that the Father loves me. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. The Apostle Paul. We know that the covenant stands. We know that God's love never changes. And we know that he's willing to foster assurance. Isn't that what he says? By two unchangeable things, his word and his oath we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He wants you to be assured. He wants you to be confident in his love. He's given you his word. That should be enough. But he knows our frame, that we're but dust. So he gives you his oath. It's as if God is saying, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. This is true. That supper is an oath. Every time you see it and you partake of it, God is swearing to you by his own name. This is true. Don't let the world deceive you. Don't let circumstances discourage you. I give you my word. I confirm it with my oath. This salvation is yours. Any questions on the assurance of God's love? That is a benefit. A benefit of being united to Christ Peace of conscience, that inward serenity that arises from being right with a holy God. We're at peace. A good conscience is a tremendous blessing and it breeds courage in the believer. Now, our catechism teaches us that we have daily failings. Every one of us sins every day. So it's a life of repentance and faith and we have peace of conscience. He who is not justified, adopted, and sanctified cannot experience this good conscience, this peace of conscience. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No peace. No peace with God. No peace with their own conscience. No peace with their fellow man. From justification, we have peace because we've been delivered from the judgment to come. A believer's conscience is sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus and set free from the fear of wrath. That is a benefit for the Christian. Now again, we, we, we sin every day and God says you can repent and believe and you're washed. But ultimately we trust in the blood of Christ to cleanse us and we have peace of conscience. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Inward and outward. Heart, word, and behavior. We're cleansed and we're accepted. There's peace with God. From our adoption, we have peace through faith in God's loving, wise, and steadfast fatherhood. As a father, he cares for his children. His fatherly care and oversight is over every one of us. And from our sanctification, we have peace from the Holy Spirit, enabling us to live a life of godliness, a good conscience. You're striving. You're trying. You're struggling against sin. There is this battle within. Sometimes we win. Sometimes we lose. But we're striving. And that's a good conscience. 
Peace of conscience can be hindered or impaired by neglect of duty or commission of sin. We've all experienced that. Sins of omission, sins of commission. And true peace, ironically, true peace is marked by the continual struggle against sin and a sincere desire to please God. Psalm 119, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. You know, the idea of repentance being not just afraid of the danger, but more and more you hate and grieve over your sin, that's a great sign. We're not going to be perfect in this life, but we can hate and grieve over our sin. Any questions on peace of conscience? Oh, Sue? Right. Your conscience is that lamp of the Lord within your soul that either excuses or accuses you. So if you do something good, your conscience excuses you. That's a good thing. If you do something bad, your conscience accuses you. It's like the little, uh, little judge within that God uses to show you right and wrong and the more informed your conscience is, the more you exercise your conscience, the more you can discern between good and evil, right? So we'll go through ethics, for example. Three weeks from now, we start the Ten Commandments, the ethics. And as our conscience is informed, thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does that mean? Well, it means that we acknowledge him to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. By thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, so forth. That's a conscience that's informed. And so if I don't adore him, my conscience tells me that's wrong. If I do adore him, my conscience will tell me that's right. Does that make sense? Well, it seems to me it's a good thing not to have peace then. <laughs> well, he can use it. He does. But peace of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, means that we know we're right with God. I'm his child. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me. Yes, I struggle every day. Yes, I have to repent. My conscience tells me I have to repent. But ultimately, I'm right with God. Yeah. Rob? A little hope. Very little a seared conscience, that is a terrible thing to, to experience. If we go against conscience, if conscience is accusing us, saying this is wrong, and we continually do it anyway, our conscience becomes more and more seared until at some point it's almost totally muffled. Now, we can never get rid of it. Even the most hardened sinner at times will have a conscience erupt, but the seared conscience is a Sore judgment, to be sure. A tender conscience is a wonderful gift. You may not think so. It, it's painful, but it's a gift. Jack? I was going to ask, is there a difference between our own conscience accusing us and the enemy speaking lies and accusing our life? Yes, it's a great question, and there is a difference, and we discern that by the Word of God. The more we know God's word, the more we can discern between good and evil. The false accusations of the devil are evil. 
And we can refute those with the shield of faith and the armor that God gives us. The accusations of conscience, an informed conscience, biblically informed, are good. We discern that and we repent. So yeah, it's a great question. And it's an important distinction. But it requires maturity to begin to discern that, Hebrews 5. Join the Holy Ghost is an inward elevation and enlargement of the believing soul. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's joy in the Holy Ghost. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the author of this. It's based upon God in Christ being the portion of our soul. And the Levitical priests were a perfect outward representation of this. They didn't have an inheritance. They inherited the Lord. That was their portion. Was it Psalm 16? The Lord is my portion in my cup. You know, when, they, when Benjamin sat down and they gave him the double portion in this big cup, he got the greatest portion. And that's the Lord for the believer. Our joy in the Holy Ghost is hidden. It's inward. It's permanent. And it's inexpressible. The heart knows its own bitterness, says Solomon, and no stranger shares its joy. It's hidden. It's inside. Paul and Silas could sing in the deepest dungeon with their backs lacerated because they have joy. It's hidden. I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Can't be taken. If you're a true Christian, if you know Christ... By faith, nobody can take your joy. They can kill your body. They can't kill your soul. From justification, we have joy manifested in our boldness to go before the presence of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there's joy. From our adoption, we have this joy manifested in the believer's filial prayer, Abba, Father. That's a joyful thing. From sanctification, we have joy manifested in a life of sincere godliness and devotion to Christ. You know what that's like. You're committed to Christ. You strive to live a godly life. The rhythm of life is joyful. It breeds joy. How do you explain that to an unbeliever? You can't. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. And when we do that, there's joy. Any questions on joy in the Holy Ghost? Or as Mark would say, Holy Spirit. This is not Casper. Okay? So assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace. And it has to do with growth in maturity of the true believer. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, thankfully, and they are ever full of sap and green. Increase of grace. The Christian life is not static. Now, you might see somebody who's been in the church for 40 years. They haven't grown in knowledge. They haven't grown in assurance really haven't grown at all. And you wonder to yourself, well, is that true faith? Because we believe that the Christian life is always dynamic. It's growing. It's advancing. 
It's never static. From our union with Christ, we receive vital spiritual influences. This is true. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. There will be fruit in your life. From justification, this flows because believers are freed from sin to serve the true and living God. This is what we were made to do. When you're a sinner, like me, all you can do is sin. You're good at it. You choose it. You desire it. And even after the conversion and the forgiveness of our sins, we still sometimes desire it, don't we? But we have been freed from its dominion. So now we can choose the good. And from our justification, we're freed from that dominion. We serve the true and living God. And insofar as we serve him, our grace increases. In justification, God imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables us to live that thereby. And so there's this increase For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. From our adoption, this flows and is manifested in the believer's sincere desire for the word of God. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's that word of God that satisfies and nourishes the soul God uses that to increase our grace, and we grow, we mature. From sanctification, this flows since the believing soul becomes more conformed to Christ's image. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And there's that passage in Psalm 84 talking about the advance Um, of the Christian life. Any comments or Christians on increase of grace that goes on in the Christian life? Hopefully we're all maturing. That's the goal of church. It's the building up of the body. It's to have us all grow to the full stature of maturity in Christ. That's the idea. So the authority that we have as ministers, elders, deacons is to build up the body. It's not for tearing down. And sadly, that happens all the time in Christianity. Officers, I don't know if they go on a power struggle or whatever it is, they want to tear down, criticize. Our authority is given for building up. Increase of grace. Okay? Perseverance. A very important Christian doctrine. A believer continues in grace and godliness to the end of his or her life. And this is probably one of the most important and comforting doctrines to understand. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't it wonderful to have the life of David in Scripture? There's this man who committed murder, adultery, lying, all in one fell swoop. Um, if you would have seen him during those nine months to a year, you would have said that he's not a believer. Perseverance to the end. God's grace was sufficient. Rescued him from his own sin so that we can neither totally 
nor finally ever fall away from the state of grace. That's perseverance. If you're a Christian, you will persevere. Or better yet, you will be preserved. You know? Isn't that wonderful? It's infallibly secured by several different things. It's secured by God's eternal decree. From before the foundation of the world, he decreed your salvation. It's secured by his covenant promise. In the covenant of grace, he has pledged his gift of perseverance to his people. I have loved you, he says, with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Because he's loved you. There never was a time when he began loving you. He's always loved you. He's faithful. It's also secured by our union with Christ. If you're joined to Christ as your head and husband, you cannot be lost. The head's already in heaven. The body has to follow. And because he intercedes for you, You'll always be on his heart, and he will pray for you so that you can be saved to the uttermost. Paul says, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including your own sin, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He'll do whatever it takes to save you. If that means chastising you, giving you a royal spanking, he will. But that's for your good. It's secured by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If he takes up residence in you, what he begins, he'll finish. And the seed of God. I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. That principle of new life. <laughs> Once God gives that gift, he'll never take it away. Professing Christians who fall away were never in reality what they professed to be. If you see somebody who you thought was a Christian and they are apostate, well then in reality, they never were what they professed to be. Because the doctrine of perseverance is true, and God will not withdraw his spirit from his children. Any questions on that one? Rob? That's great. I love it. We don't need much practice. We're pretty good at it from birth, I think. But no, what, I, what that means, it's a good question. It means... As a believer, we sin. We fall into sin, sometimes grievously. But we don't make a practice of it. We'll repent. It took David nine months at least to figure that out, but he repented. Um, the unbeliever makes a practice, a habit. His lifestyle is sinful. And I think that's what it's getting at. Yeah, that's a good question. Ian. Five years old. <laughs> <laughs> the difference between our understanding 
Yeah. Um, the Reformed understanding is, if you have an equation, faith equals salvation plus works, right? So you believe in Christ, you're saved, and that'll issue in a life of good works. The Catholic equation is faith. They believe in faith. Don't get that wrong. I mean, they do talk about faith, but it's faith plus works equals salvation. So the faith in Christ will produce the works of grace, which will then earn salvation. Big difference. And it's called a sacramental salvation, so that if you are baptized, you're saved. If you fall into sin, penance. At the end of your life, absolution. You know, this, this idea that the sacraments, if they're rightly performed, ex opere operato, they dispense grace, right? So you have the faith plus works equals salvation coupled with the sacramental understanding of grace, and it's all kind of mechanical, and you can lose it. The Arminians even, I'm not sure if it's worse, but it's bad. I mean, the idea that you cannot persevere unless you're obedient, it's all depending upon you, basically. If your faith weakens to the point where you fall into grievous sin, you can, you can totally, and you might finally, fall away. I don't want to be in a religion like that. It's a treadmill. I don't want to be, you know... I know how weak and unreliable I am. Mary Ellis? That's a good way to put it. The biggest, Bellarmine, one of their greatest Roman Catholic theologians, said the greatest Protestant heresy, this, this is a Roman Catholic talking, the greatest Protestant heresy is assurance of salvation. They don't have it for the very reason that you said. He's a scorekeeper. You never know which side of the scale is going to be you know. Finally, and this is not in our question. Oh, I'm sorry. Was there another? I'm sorry, Mark. Very good point. Right. Very good point. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about the morning rule, and the men who've read them know what I'm talking about, where you get up in the morning, and the first thing you say, I'm a child of God, I'm a prince of heaven, and today's my day to live like it. I may fall, but I am God's child. That's exactly what you're saying. Mary Alice?
Well, he, he acknowledges the actual danger of living in this fallen world. Remember he said, I don't want to preach to others and disqualify myself. So he's acknowledging the idea that there are real dangers. But at the same time, while we acknowledge the dangers, the threats to the Christian life, he would also say, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So you have to understand both of those in harmony. It's sort of like these mysteries of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, right? Is it perseverance or is it preservation? Well, it's both. And I think sometimes scripture will talk as if it's perseverance. You need to persevere. Hebrews 3, if we're in his house, if we persevere. But then there's preservation. They'll never let, uh, my father will never let you go. So, Ernie? Very possible. Very possible. Because he does say at one point, there are some who are going to be saved by the skin of their teeth, right? Okay, well, at least I'm in. But there are other things. You're, you're living a life of godliness. God rewards the works of his grace in your life. Yeah, that, that's very possible. Yeah. Finally, larger catechism adds a clause detailing the experience of the wicked even in this life, before death, they have foretastes of condemnation. And sometimes the terrors can be so intense that it's likened to hell on earth. Their conscience plagues them. Illustrations can be found in the dying words and actions of unbelievers. These are foretastes now of condemnation. They can take several forms. A sense of God's revenging wrath from which they would want to flee but cannot possibly avoid. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone. We are all undone. Horror of conscience, which leads to despair, like that of the apostate Francis Spira, who died in 1548. He was a lawyer, had 11 children, had apparently a conversion experience, was a great evangelist, and then they came, I think the Jesuits came and threatened his life, so he signed his name to a recantation of his faith, apostate. And he became consumed with this horror of conscience. And as far as we know, he died in that condition. And he was very well known among Puritan theologians. Not well known now, nobody's probably heard of him. But during the Puritan era, he was always used as a perfect example of apostasy. Horror of conscience. We have Judas who said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And he went and hanged himself. He considered death to be more appealing than dealing with the horror of conscience. A fearful expectation of judgment because every person knows deep down that judgment looms. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. So these are foretastes for the unbeliever of the condemnation that they'll enjoy, endure after death. You have the foretastes for the believer 
you have the foretastes for the unbeliever. And again, these will ebb and flow, depending on the person, the time, the circumstances. Uh, sometimes, like Felix, when he hears Paul preaching, his knees knock, he sh- he's trembling. Go away, and we'll talk at a more convenient time. And of course, the conviction then fades away. And as far as we know, Felix died in his sins. Any comments or questions on that? I hate to end on a terrible note, but it's only one slide. Okay? Well, thank you for your attention. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful foretastes of communion with Christ that we enjoy in this life, the assurance, the peace, the joy, the increase, the perseverance. Thank you for these benefits. Please now prepare us for worship as we come into your presence to ascribe worth to your majestic name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.